if in doubt, fix bayonets and charge the enemy. The old-fashioned bayonet charge won many battles for the British during the Napoleonic era, but was there still a place for it in later wars? Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, a place where we rescue great British soldiers and their deeds from the dustbin of history. Please subscribe and leave a review as it really helps others to find us. My goal is for these stories to once again become mainstream and to bring them to a new generation. Today is the fourth instalment of my series examining the life of General Sir Hugh Gough, one of the pre-eminent men of British military history of the Victorian era. Once again, historian and friend Chris Bryce joins me on the show and explains Gough's performance as Commander-in-Chief during the Anglo-Sikh Wars of the late 1840s. If you listened to my last episode, you'll know that Gough was heavily involved in the Opium War against the Chinese, and now he was back for a crack at the Sikhs. Chris has written a book on Gough called Brave as a Lion, which can be purchased from helion.co.uk, that's H-E-L-I-O-N.co.uk. Listeners of this show will also receive a 20% discount by putting in the code LION2020 at checkout. That's all capital letters, L-I-O-N-2020. The first Anglo-Sikh war was fought between 1845 and 1846. For more background on that war, you may want to check out my previous interviews with Amapol Sidhu Singh. That's episodes 32 and 34 of the podcast. I'll link to them in the show notes below, but you can just search for them. To try to sum everything up in a couple of sentences, just to make this interview make a little bit more sense. War with the Sikhs came about after the death of the great Ranjit Singh, ruler of the Sikh kingdom in northern India. It kind of straddles today where the border is between the modern India and Pakistan. After Ranjit Singh's death, there was a power vacuum in the Sikh kingdom, and the British and East India Company began to sniff around, increasing their forces close to the border. Both sides grew wary of one another, and it looked like only a matter of time before war was inevitable. Let's find out more from Chris. When the Anglo-Sikh war breaks out, What's, how does Goff, what's his response? What does he do? Well, Goff has actually been trying to do things before the conflict starts. Um, and on quite understandable grounds to an extent, Harjinj is saying, who is the governor general, that's, I suppose we should have established that, and is in effect Goff's boss. Uh, he's working in a political capacity, but he's also got great military experience. Um, He's also got great military influence because he's a close friend and follower of the Duke of Wellington, whose position is still, despite his age and despite all that goes on, he's still the dominant force in the British Army by a considerable way. Um, So Gough has been trying to make arrangements, but Hardinch has said no, because you might precipitate a conflict that we might be able to avoid otherwise. Uh, Goff wants to make preparations. Goff wants to start things moving. He start, wants to improve, um, and this is, has happened before the sequels, he, he wants to improve um, the storage facilities, the, the, the magazines, etc., nearer the border uh, so that they can be ready for any potential conflict. He's trying to do that. He's vetoed by the political authorities, uh, partly on grounds of cost, but also on the grounds that they don't want to do anything that might um, incite the Sikhs and might make the conflict happen that could otherwise be avoided. 
So it's it's a you know it's a difficult situation for both. You can see that's an honourable position that they both hold. Goff obviously is thinking, well, I've got to fight this conflict, and you've got uh, Hardinge thinking, well, wait a minute, I've got to try and uh, you know avoid this if I possibly can. He knows that's uh, that's his course there. Goff is trying to do things and trying to get things moving towards the the border, but. It's very, it's very hard. He's rather, you know, making plans with one hand tied behind his back. Um, even after the, uh, the declaration of war, he is still rather hampered by some of these, you know, uh, political considerations and financial considerations. There's an interesting uh, little, you know, story here that relates to. Um, the, uh, well, actually, I suppose in many senses it relates to, to all the conflicts in that Goff wants to bring up the heavy artillery, the siege train, and in both conflicts, he is prevented from doing that. And then in both conflicts, he is criticised and Harding actually prevents him from fighting a battle until that arrives. So there are delays sometimes caused by the fact that the heavy artillery isn't there that Goff had wanted to bring up much earlier would have been stopped for political reasons. And now the politicians are urging him to, to not fight because the heavy artillery hasn't arrived. And I think Goff doesn't really turn around and say, well, you know, if you'd let me bring it up when I wanted to, we wouldn't have this problem. Yeah, this, this um, clash between the military and politicians has been going on forever, hasn't it? And I suspect oh, it, it will always continue. Yes, and it, it's hard... That, as well in this sense, as you know, we've alluded to earlier that Hardinge was also a military commander. And whilst technically uh, he was junior um, on the, the army list to Goff, um, he, he had the political authority of being governor general. And we get this incident, incident in the, uh, the Sikh Wars where Hardinge comes forward to join the army and offers to serve under Goff. Um, it's a difficult position for Goff to be placed in. He can't really say no, but you've suddenly now got the Governor General, his boss, also acting as his, in effect, second in command. Uh, it's, not a, it's not an ideal situation by any stretch of the imagination. <clears throat> there is one thing that Hardinge could have done uh, he comes to the field and says, I'll act as your second in command. What would have been a wonderful thing he could have done would say, I'll come and I'll act as your chief of staff. Because here's the big problem with the, well, with both Anglo sequels, but particularly the first one. The staff system is terrible. <clears throat> to an extent, Goff takes a bit of blame for this. You know, he, he perhaps should have done uh, a bit more. But you have a situation where the adjutant general is too ill to join the army. Now, in the way armies were structured in this period, an adjutant general probably almost does act as a chief of staff in the field. But he <clears throat> he doesn't come to the field. So you get poor old Patrick Grant, who's the assistant adjutant general, is acting both as an acting adjutant general, he's almost doing the work of a quartermaster general and chief of staff all on his own. I find it very, I mean, Patrick Grant doesn't do a very good job, but I find it very hard 
to criticize him because he's being asked to do an impossible task. Um, you know, it, it, there's no way anyone could do this. His staff is almost non-existent coming to the field. Then there are officers like the future uh, Field Marshal Napier who comes and acts just as a staff officer because he's got nothing else to do. He's an artillery officer, he's an engineering officer, sorry, who isn't really needed. Um, so he, he just joins the staff of General Goff and, 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 and does some, some very helpful work there. But there's no sort of organised or planned staff before the conflict. And would that, so, would that fall like Goff's door, would you say? To an extent. Um, to an extent as well, this is something that Hardinge could have solved for him if he'd really wanted to. You know... I, I, but there is a, a real sense in which we do have to say that this is where Goff is out of out of his depth as a overreaching commander. Um, you know, with with great sort of military operations of this scale, he's not really got the the ability to deal with them. Um, it's it's a tricky situation. I, again, I don't want to blame Goff in time because it isn't his fault. But yes, he does have to take some of the blame. Um, there could have been things done far better that would have helped him. As I say, if Hardinge had come along and said, right, I'll take over the staff duties, which he was more than capable to do and had the experience of that, that would have been the great help to go. There's a wonderful um, quote by uh, Professor Sir Hugh Strawn um, about Goff, where he says he, and I'm paraphrasing slightly here, but he, he says he's a, he's a blucher who never found his Neisner. So he never found that chief of staff who would get him into the position where he could fix bandits in charge, in effect, or, or fight the battle. He never found that man to, to be that organiser for him. And I think that's a very, um, a very fair comment. And I think it's, it's that. If that's where Hardinge could have, he could have been the, the Neisner. And he could have really helped, uh, you know, make things run fast more smoothly. But of course, later on in the conflict, we get that rather unpleasant incident where the second in command overrules the commander in chief. This is at the Battle of Pharaoh Shah, is that right? Yes, yeah. Um, where he takes on his his role as governor general and basically says. You know, I'm not going to let you fight the battle. Uh, you're going to wait. Um, so for any listeners who aren't aware, I think Goff just wanted to throw his men at the Sikh defences, didn't, didn't he? And yeah. Hardinge said, no, you need to wait till you've got more men. Is that essentially what happened? That's essentially it. Um, the problem is it just takes too long. And then you have a position where do they wait? Because he doesn't attack till the afternoon. You have a problem then. Does he attack then or does he wait until the following day? He decides, part, again, partly under pressure from Hardinge, to attack that afternoon. Rather than just simply think that it's a gung-ho attitude of, um, of, of Goffs, and obviously there was an element of that, that he wasn't much a fixed bayonets and charge man, um, there is also, that is the considered tactic 
for dealing with troops in India, for dealing with native forces in India. And this goes back to the French experience, this is before the, the British, that you go on the offensive, you attack. You don't sit back and defend, you attack. That's yeah, the way... Clive of India, wasn't it? It goes all the way back to Clive. That was his kind yeah. of mantra. Well, yeah, and I think actually uh, that, yeah, I mean, Clive's the first sort of... Um, British commander to use it, but it actually goes back to the French experience, and it's been that sort of tactical doctrine throughout that period ever since, that, you know, if you're facing a native army, you attack. You don't sit on the defensive, you attack. That's the best way to deal with this situation. That's, in a sense, all Goff's doing. The fact that it's also, you know, his main tactic as well. Um, and again, this goes back to our previous interview. This is a man who has seen the uh, French army that has conquered Europe, beaten back by British infantry uh, time and time again. And I've been asked this question a number of times, you know, did Goff underestimate the Sikhs? And I don't believe he did. If you read his quotes, uh, if you read his letters and correspondence, he knows he's facing a very tough enemy. Uh, he knows that they're incredibly capable. I don't think he ever underestimates the Sikh. I think, if anything, he overestimates uh, his own forces. Uh, he overestimates what British infantry can do in, the, in, the, in these circumstances. Um, but I mean, that does take us to an interesting area. You know, the Sikhs are a hugely impressive military force. Yes, this isn't the army of, of Ranjit Singh. This isn't that sort of, you know, level of sophistication, really. But we're talking about an army that has been trained and disciplined, most of it, by experienced Napoleonic officers. You have a number of former uh, generals, etc., from Napoleon's army, who have come over to uh, the Sikh Empire under Ranjit Singh. And they start developing. So you've got one commanding the artillery, one, you know, training up the infantry, the cavalry, et cetera, et cetera. One commanding sort of like a logistical area. And, and this is developing a, a very sophisticated, modern-looking army in many respects. Their firearms and their technology is at least equal to the British in many respects. Um, they have their own gun foundries. There's a Sikh um, gun engineer whose name I'm, I'm afraid escapes me, but he's one of the best of his age. And he's not only, I mean, originally they start off copying European patterns, but then they start developing their own and improving them. And there are, there are times in the Anglo Sikh Wars, which is something that no one really wants to admit during the conflicts or immediately after them, where British artillery is outclassed. It really is. And we're not just talking about um, the guns themselves. We're talking about the gunners as well. Sikh gunners are excellent during the conflict. Um, and we have this excellent military machine, which is far more um, difficult for Goff to defeat than I think a lot of people appreciate. There's a quote from the Duke of Wellington just during this period that said, uh, you know, people in Britain had forgotten that Indians could fight because there's been such such relatively easy victories up to that point. 
Well, we were coming up against an army here that was a, a serious, serious threat. Um, I'm sure you've spoken with uh, Amapal and Gurinder about the levels of betrayal um, yeah. amongst Sikh generals. A lot of eternal strife, not a happy court. No, and we know very clearly that uh, some of the senior Sikh generals are during the conflict itself in correspondence with senior political officers within the British Army, but also the Governor General. Um, there is one important uh, element to understand with that. Um, I've not seen anything in any of the correspondence to suggest that Goff is actually aware of this. I think he's given some of the information, obviously, through channels, but none of the correspondence is directly with Goff. So I'm I'm unsure how much he ever really knew about that that side of things. Um, again, you know, yes, obviously, there's an element in which the senior Sikh leadership are hedging their bets. Um, they're not entirely they they actually don't want the Sikh army to win to some extent because of how that will affect them personally. Um, there's an element of that. But well, that only goes so far. Uh, I don't think you can say that's the only reason why there's there's a British success, etc. Um, I think you've got to look at, at more in, in more depth than, than that. I mean, yes, that plays a part. But I mean, uh, we, we mentioned briefly uh, Feroz Shah, where on the second day of the battle. Um, you may know the story uh, as well as I do that um, the British are short of ammunition, short of men. They're stood ready facing the enemy, waiting for the Sikh attack. Um, things look pretty black. But again, we're talking about British infantry in, in def on defence here. Um, which I don't think should be underestimated. Um, I don't think, as many people think, oh, if, if the uh, if the Sikh army had just charged the British that day, they'd have won the, the battle. I think that's mm. I think that's a little unfair. Um, I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened. I'm just saying I don't think it would have been an easy victory by any stretch of the imagination. No, I, um, I, I think you're right. Uh, British infantry, particularly in defence, are very tenacious. <laughs> Even without ammunition, <laughs> um, I mean, let's remember at, uh, at Waterloo, by the end of that, they're down to, what, few rounds per man? Uh, it's very small number of amounts of ammunition that's left. Uh, similar, in a sense, to uh, Forrestshire. And, of course, we get this bizarre incident at Forrestshire where there's a young staff officer called Lumley, um, who actually is one of the, uh, the ancestors of Joanna Lumley, but, oh, okay, uh, British actress. Yes, and as as you know, she's um, she's spoken quite strongly about her military links and her links to British India over the years. This this is one side of the family she doesn't mention too often, because this young lieutenant, who I think, if we're being polite, had got a touch of the sun, um, had the night before tried to order part of the army to leave, but he sent the he he given the order to Harry Smith. And Harry Smith is one of those great characters, you know, you, you probably know a fair bit about him in, in South Africa, um, who, who wasn't going to take orders from some jumped up little lieutenant. 
uh, if he was going to take orders, he was going to take it from the commander in chief. And so he didn't do it. But then on the day of the, on the second day of the battle, Lumley tells all the cavalry and artillery to leave the field and they do it. And so you have this bizarre situation where at the start of the conflict, the infantry is there waiting <clears throat> and suddenly all the artillery <laughs> and, and cavalry start moving away from the field of battle because they've been given these orders by this Lieutenant Lumley, uh, who, who is a staff officer. And you can understand commanders thinking, well, this must come from the commander in chief then. Now, there is a point at which I will give some fair uh, legitimacy to the Sikh decision not to press the attack then. Because if you suddenly see a load of artillery and cavalry moving off to your flank, I can understand quite legitimately thinking, what's going on here? What are they trying to do? Now, the Sikh commanders do know that there is a lot of British infantry, um, still about 10,000 men, I believe, uh, at, um, at another base, and I can't remember the name of it. Uh, is it Fer Ferozpur, I think? It might be, yeah. Yeah, Ferozpur. Um, and I think it's perfectly understandable if a Sikh commander thinks, wait a minute, are they coming, are the artillery and infantry going over there to join up with some infantry that might be coming that I don't know about? Uh, to attack me in the flank whilst I'm going forward to attack the British. Now, you know, there's the duplicity, there's the connivance, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think there is a legitimate case to be made for saying, do you know what? We'll leave the field. We'll fight this another day. I think you can make a legitimate case for that. I really do. Yeah. Um, and partly because of the, the idiotic behaviour of this, this Lieutenant Lumley, I think you can perhaps make a case for that. Um, just, needless to say, I don't think he saw any further service. Uh, <laughs> so we've we spoke about Feroz Shah, and at Feroz Shah, Goff did you know launch a, a, a bayonet charge essentially against the Dugin Sikh positions, and I believe he did something similar at Sabrawan. What, what do you yes. think, having researched him and read a lot about him, do you think this was a good idea? I know he's been criticised for it, but essentially he didn't lose those battles and at Sabrawan had a great victory. So was he actually right to throw his men forward in these sorts of bayonet charges against dug-in positions? It, it, it's a bit more complicated than that. I mean, obviously, as we've established, he's a great believer in the strength of British infantry in the bed. He's not alone in that uh, doctrine by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, in many ways, military tactics of this period were all designed to bring you to a point where you could do just that. You could unleash the infantry with the bayonet. Um, that's the way battles are fought during this period still. So in one sense, that's, you know, that's entirely understandable. I suppose there's something a bit more to look at, as I've mentioned previously, the strength of the Sikh army. Normally you would launch your artillery, as uh, launch your infantry after your artillery had silenced, you know, the, the enemy guns. I mean, this is a simplistic way of, of describing battle tactics during this period, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. Uh, it normally starts off with an artillery duel. You know, the, the, the artillery fire at each other trying to gain the upper hand. Um, if one does, then normally that's the force that launches the infantry forward with bayonets at the, at the front. Now, 
part of the problem, as I explained, Sikh artillery is that good. The British very rarely, if ever, outclass the, the, the artillery they're facing. Um, I mean, there is obviously at, um, at Mudki, uh, Goff does miss a trick because uh, the artillery duel to begin with is, is, is a stalemate. But then the cavalry, the British cavalry do wonderful work at Mudki. They drive away some of the uh, Sikh cavalry and they also drive away some of the gunners and they silence the artillery. Now, at that point, really, a more astute commander than Goff might have restarted his artillery bombardment, but this time straight at the, um, at the Sikh infantry and cavalry that remained on the field. Uh, he doesn't. The fading light does play a fact in that, but he could still probably should have done it. Um, Pershar, again, he hasn't got the upper hand in terms of, of the artillery duel. So what do you do? Well, to a man like Goff, it's quite simple. You fix bayonets in charge. Um, is that the best tactic to do? Possibly not. Is it the worst tactic to do? Again, probably not. Um, but I suppose you can't really condemn a man too much for playing to his strengths, which, and he perceived that to be his strength. Now, if you ever actually think about it, these are Infantry charges were horrendous. Um, the, the slaughter, the, um, the you know the, the con conditions, the, the outcomes, etc. Um, you've got to you've got to wonder and marvel at these men who kept charging. Um, it, it's 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 something you can't quite <laughs> can't quite get your head around sometimes. Um, that they would keep going and keep going and keep going. Uh, it, it is absolutely remarkable. Um, so in that sense, I suppose that sort of gives a bit of a strength to Goff's thought of unlaunching the infantry, because you see this force going again and again and again. You know, you can understand if you've got infantry that, that is that disciplined, for want of a better word, I can't think of a better word, that discipline, you can understand wanting to unleash them on the enemy. Um, was it the right decision? Not necessarily. But, you know, I'm not entirely sure uh, for Raza Shah what exactly he could have done differently. Um, and again, he's been greatly delayed by, uh, by Hardinge. The light's fading him fading uh he's he's running out of time a more prudent man might have waited until the following day uh goff wasn't that sort of person you know he wanted to attack the enemy and again as we say that is the principle of warfare in india go on the offensive um but it, it, it's difficult you know it's, it's a difficult situation it's very easy to say you know 170 years later or whatever it is um, and say oh it was wrong or it wasn't the right decision you know etc but really at that time and that place I think it's an understandable decision yeah and and I mean essentially you know whatever however he may be criticized 
you know, and whatever was happening behind the scenes with the Sikh forces, that war was a victory. And so I guess from that sense, you can't take that away from him. Now, after the British victory, I haven't read much about the second Sikh war, but what do we what do we see happen? He is still in charge then, isn't he? Sorry for a dumb he question. Is, yes, yeah, he is, yeah. So, I mean, you do, you do get a bizarre situation where, and, and he sort of alluded it, to it there, that, um, you know, we, we get Crosshaw, then we get um, uh, Harry Smith's victory at uh, Aliwal, um, which actually, if you look at some of the correspondence, Goff gets a lot of credit for, for giving uh, Smith the means and the opportunity to go and, uh, and do it. Because in a sense... Goff has been, again, by political authorities, has been limited as to what he's allowed to do at this stage. He's, he's being told to wait for reinforcements, but he doesn't want to be completely inactive. So he sends Harry Smith off with a decent force. Now, Harry Smith, uh, probably a more astute commander than Goff in some ways. He is very fortunate at Aliwal in that the, the Sikhs make a fatal mistake and that they place themselves with their back against the river and therefore what starts as a as a setback becomes a rout because they've no way to escape really um and then the final battle again which you know just shows how hard the Sikhs fought at Sabran um we we see just how strong and determined an enemy it is Goff doesn't do too much wrong at Sabran, to be perfectly honest. Um, yes, perhaps he could have done some things better, but who couldn't? Um, but he's still, you know, and it's a victory, but it's still quite high casualties. And you have to give the credit to the Sikhs. You know, it, it, this is part of the problem I have with the criticism of Goff, because some of it's understandable. A lot of it, though, I think it's more we look back as historians and we underestimate the Sikhs. We look at back at them and we don't quite appreciate how formidable a force this was. Um, and you can talk about their leadership and their you know, duplicity, et cetera, et cetera. But during a battle, when you're there in your battalion or you're there in your, on your guns as a Sikh soldier, that doesn't matter. You know, that they're fighting who's in front of them at that time. They're not necessarily bothered about who's behind them. So there's this determination from the individual soldiers, even if there isn't from the leadership. So when you're in battle, don't underestimate the Sikh army because they are formidable. True. And so, you know, that's the end of the first Anglo-Sikh war. Um, a compromise is arranged where there is still a Sikh state, but there are British sort of control, etc. It, it's a bit of a nothing situation. They didn't annex the Punjab, which perhaps they, they should have done then if they were going to do it at all. Um, and it just meant that a second conflict was was inevitable, despite what Hardinge said. I mean, Hardinge wrote back a letter at that period and said uh, there wouldn't be a need to fire a shot in, in India again for another 30 years or 20 years or something like that. Um, oh, yes, yes. It reminds me of that um, that British Defence Secretary who said we were going to Afghanistan and might not actually have to fight a shot in fire a shot in anger. Was it uh, John Reid? Was it? I believe. I think it might have been. Yeah, just before Helmand, two thousand and six, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Which was this, just stupid because you know it, it clearly had 
no idea of the history of Afghanistan. If you thought you're going there and you're not going to have to fire a shot, well, you've not read your history. Um, and it, it, again, it was inevitable. So because of the way the first Sikh war finished in terms of the political settlement, a second conflict was inevitable at some point, really, to be honest. Yeah. Um, the incident that starts it is at Multan, where the Sikh government, um, under British influence, uh, tries to change the governor of Multan, um, and there is a rebellion against the two officers who were sent, uh, and the governor, and basically... Was, uh, Agnew, was it Van Ag... Van Ag uh, Van's Agnew, and... Oh, what was his name? Yeah, there's still a big memorial to them in Multan. I went there a few years ago oh, and went you? and took some photos. Yeah, I don't know where those photos are, but uh, I'll have to fish well, them out. But yeah, still a fascinating city. Yeah, Lieutenant William Anderson. That was the go. other other officer. Um, and from there, you know, you get the siege of Mul, uh, Multan by the, the, the wonderful uh, Lieutenant Edwards, um, who... Just it, it is a fascinating character in his own right. Um, and so, you know, <clears throat> this second uh, conflict starts. We have a different governor general by this time, um, uh, the Earl of Dalhousie. Um, and he's different from Hardinji in many ways. He's not a military man, although his father was a military man. And but he is a great friend, follower confidant of the Duke of Wellington. So there's still this great influence of the Duke of Wellington with, with, with Dalhousie during the, um, during the conflict. Um, we get a bizarre situation here where Dalhousie, for some reason, just before the conflict, has renewed Gough's period of command, even though Gough wanted to return to England. Uh, even though Dalhousie had his doubts about Gough, um, he decides to renew his period as Commander-in-Chief. Exactly why, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, and I don't, I'm not entirely sure anyone really knows the, the real reason for that, but there obviously, I don't, th I, th I think he could see a second conflict coming, and he didn't want a great change of leadership and, you know, to be criticised for, well, you got rid of the Commander-in-Chief just before the conflict, and, you know, you brought in a new man, and uh, inevitably he was having to start from scratch. Um, whether that's the case or not, I don't know. But the second conflict is is much harder again for Gough because he's he's, he's been really severely limited by uh, in terms of preparations. Uh, Dalhousie is really trying to cut back on the costs of the army, so there have been uh, reductions before uh, the conflict in the intervening period, and it's really hard for, for Gough to, re to really sort of put together serious force, and it takes him a long time. Um, we get the sort of the, uh, the aborted battles at uh, Ramnagar and Saddlepur uh, in late uh, 1848. And then we move on to what is really the major, first major battle of the campaign of the Second Anglo Sikh War. Um, on uh, in uh, January '49, which is uh, Chilamwala. Now, this is the only battle in Goff's entire career 
that you can say he didn't win. However, I would strongly deny any assertion that he lost it. It was a drawn battle. That, that's simply what it was. Um, I do think in some cases you do have to say that perhaps it broke the back of the Sikh army in some respects. Um, the Battle of Gujarat, uh, about a month later in February, uh, 1849 is a is the final battle and it's an overwhelming British victory although again you know British casualties aren't on exactly small but that is because they're fighting the Sikhs um, pure and simple so I don't want to dwell on Chinnawalla for too long it's not because I'm trying to overlook it but I think it's been gone into many many times before by many people. Um, there have been some nonsensical fantasies about Chilamwala um, that have been repeated and um, there was said at the time and some have been repeated in books fairly recently. Uh, I won't name the author, but there was one recently who, who reported this bizarre story of the time that after the Battle of Chilamwala, there was a move afoot to um, Court Martial Goff. Um, I mean, who who sits on a court martial of the commander in chief? That's a, that's an interesting question to start with. But it was nonsense. It was complete and utter nonsense. You do get a sense as well that the press, both in India and in London, and of course we need to remember that things that are going on in London are behind events in India because of the the space of time. It's about a month in terms of time. Uh, from getting reports from India to London. And um, these are the days before the great sort of, you know, the telegraph system that could send messages back and forth in, in a day or so. Um, <clears throat> we, we're, we're talking about a, a month correspondence to get back and forth. And so London's reacting well after, you know, events have actually happened. I mean, the irony is when they send Napier out to take over, uh, Charles Napier to take over command of the army, Goff's already finished the war. The war is already over. Um, you know, Gujarat has been fought. Um, the Sikhs have, have, have all but surrendered. Well, just just quickly, Chris, at Chilianwala, then what 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 did Goff do? Was it was it that old fashioned you know the tactics we've been discussing, fixed bayonets and charge? Is that why he was so criticised? Um, what 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 did he do, sort of tactically? Do you think that that may have cost him the victory? Well, you know, you've said it in that sense that it was the, the, the bayonet charge, but in this case, there really is very little alternative. There was one, well, there was one very key alternative, which is that he shouldn't have fought the battle. Um, you know, the, the Sikhs were in a very strong position. The flank could not be turned, even if he had thought of that, because there was a very strong Sikh position that prevented that. Um, and the topography as well. Um, the artillery as well. I mean, th there's, there are reports from artillery officers who I think saying that they, um, they bested the Sikh artillery. Well, they didn't. They really didn't. And this idea that the Sikh guns had all been put out of action and, uh, you know, they could just have carried on the bombardment that they were winning 
<clears throat> one of the, the artillery officers said, well, we were winning the artillery duel and then the commander in chief stopped it. Well, they weren't. They really were not winning the artillery duel because really with the exception of Gujarat, the British artillery didn't win an artillery duel in the entire campaign, both wars, to be quite frank. Um, and again, as I've explained earlier, you know, you don't just look to the inferiority of British artillery, you look to the, how good Sikh artillery was as well. Not as good, I admit, in the second conflict as it was in the first. But, you know, he, he has a situation here where, and there is a sense in which that he had actually not intended to fight the battle that day. But then his men came under fire. And when your troops are under fire, you have a, as a commander, you have a quick decision to make. You either pull back, or you attack. If your troops are under fire, you've got one or two choices. You either pull back out of range or you attack, really, if there's no suitable cover to take. Goff was not the sort of man who was going to pull back, certainly not in the face of the enemy, um, and certainly not once they had started firing. You know, that was the battle. So he committed his men in an attack. It's not just... Uh, off at Chilamwalla who, who makes mistakes. It's a bad day for the British Army in terms of various errors. There's the error with the cavalry, which I think is quite well known, which where they, they, they leave the field on mistaken orders and they, 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 they basically depart and they start running away, etc. It's not a good day for British cavalry at uh, Chilamwalla. Also, the, the normally reliable um, Colin Campbell, one, you know, later Baron Clyde, one of the, uh, the better uh, military commanders under, under Goff, uh, even he has a bad day and makes mistakes and errors. Um, it's just one of those days when nothing goes right. Um, that's because they shouldn't, as I say, probably have fought the battle on that day. Um, but to a man like Goff, you know, withdrawing in the face of the enemy would not have been something he would have yeah. thought. Um, and I don't think there were too many British military commanders of that period who would have done. Um, I can imagine Wellington doing it uh, and then thinking, no, we'll fight this another day. Or perhaps withdrawing and trying to lure the Sikhs onto him and then fighting back. But, you know, regardless of what we might think of his later career, Wellington is one of the great British military commanders. Um, he has a tactical nous, which is severely lacking in pretty much everyone else during this period. Um, so that might sound quite simplistic, but it isn't really in many senses. And again, we've got that tactical doctrine of India that you attack. Yeah. And so I think this is part of the problem at Chinawala. Well, so we, we we have essentially, from what you're saying, a bit of a bit of a stalemate, bit of a score draw, is it, at Chilianwala? Yes. Yeah. I don't think I don't think in any way you can say it is a Sikh victory. Equally, I don't think you can say it's a British victory. Yeah. So there is only one, you know, solution in that sense. It's a draw, and it is a drawn battle. Yeah. But the reaction to this drawn battle uh, <clears throat> within India and also within Britain. It's just ridiculous. The, the press go berserk over it. They start all these, you know, that he's threatened, Goth has threatened the, the future of British India. 
by not fighting a, a decisive battle. Um, yeah, and, and they really stir up a lot of antagonism against Goth. There's a degree in which as well, they're, they're making up the news as well, because there are letters that are printed in newspapers, particularly the Times, um, that are, I, won't, I was going to say purported, I'm not even sure that's the right word, but it's a strong suggestion that these people have been at the battles and are writing from the battlefield. Well, no, they haven't. Um, because you can tell that just if, if, if someone does the maths and thinks of the time delay, you know, it's impossible that these letters from the battlefield have got back to London in time. And some of the officers who uh, are supposed to have been at the battle uh, are, are in Calcutta. Um, at the time, you know, we, we can actually show evidence of this and report this that they were actually in Calcutta. They were nowhere near the battlefield up in the Punjab. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a vast yeah. distance. I don't know it off the top of my head. But that's a long way yeah. from the scene of battle. And yet they're writing these letters to the Times and to other newspapers um, about how terrible things are and how bad Goff is and the situation's terrible and, you know, British India's doomed. Um, and they're nowhere near the in the seat of war um so yeah there's there's a great overreaction uh by the press um and even after Gujarat, when goff wins the war and, and the attitudes start to change um you know there are many who uh still uh try and criticize for a little while there is a fantastic uh, see if i can find it whilst I'm looking, um, where Punch, the satirical magazine, who had been um, greatly critical of Goff and had done some, uh, some rather uh, macabre uh, cartoons and jokes about... Um, uh, Goff was doing more than uh, any man in history to help uh, with economy in the army by uh, getting rid of most of it. Um, and there's also things about, uh, oh, because there was a large number of British troops killed, you know, European troops rather than the native infantry. Uh, there's something, there's a joke about uh, him being desperately short of white cloth um, as well. There's, there's some quite macabre and unpleasant things that uh, they do say about uh, him but punch alone almost in terms of um, the newspapers uh, is prepared to admit its mistake later on um, and uh, I'll just see if I can read this little bit here from from punch um, you know, they found themselves in a somewhat embarrassing position. They deeply criticised this man. And now he was being lauded by the public and the government as a hero for the Battle of Gujarat and for the fact that the, the Punjab had been conquered. Um, you know, but, but Punch is the only newspaper that, or the only piece of the media that asked the good grace to admit they were wrong. Um, yeah, I, I'll read you this little quote from Punch. Says Punch hereby begs to present his thanks to Lord Goff 
and the officers and soldiers of the British Army in India for the brilliant victory which they had the good fortune to gain the other day at Gujarat. And Punch, by these presents, extols his lordship and his troops to the skies. A few weeks ago, Punch sent Lord Gough his dismissal, which Mr Punch is now glad did not arrive in time to prevent the triumph for which he is thus thankful. Having violently abused Lord Gough for losing the day at Chilamwala, Punch outrageously glorifies him for winning the fight at Gujarat. When Lord Gough met with a reverse, Punch set him down for an incompetent octogenarian. Now that he has been fortunate, Punch believes him to be a gallant veteran. For Mr Punch, like many other people, of course looks merely to results and takes as his only criterion of merit, success. Now there's a, there's a great deal of truth in that as well, because I think even Punch is, is, is saying there that they, you know, they did exaggerate, they did uh, get rather carried away. Um, there's also a sense in which the British Parliament and the government also gets rather carried away. Um, there are debates in the House of Commons and there's a move to um, replace Gough. And they send Charles Napier, you know, hurriedly out to, <clears throat> to India. Now, Charles Napier, let's put a little bit of context there. Napier had left India because he'd been severely criticised in the press. Napier was not popular in India, but he was sent out. That, you know, clearly they saw this as an emergency, whatever they tried to say afterwards. You wouldn't send Napier back to India unless it was an emergency. Um, and there's a, there's a quote uh, from the Duke of Wellington, because Napier didn't want to go. You know, he said, I've got too many enemies in India, this isn't going to work. Uh, and he said that to the Duke of Wellington. And Wellington's supposed to have said, well, either you go or I'll have to. <laughs> you know, and this is, this is a very old, old uh, Duke of Wellington. Now, whether he, he really meant that or not is open to debate. I mean, it might just have been a way of illustrating to Napier how serious mm. uh, he perceived, perceived the situation to be. Um, but the daft thing is, all this talk of replacement and sending out Napier, etc., it, it's all irrelevant because the war's already over. Um, but they don't know about it in London yet. So Goff's essentially won the war. Napier's on his way out. Is this the end of Goff's career? Is he finally done? It is to a large extent. Um, um, part, of, part of the thing is that Goff at this stage, he knows there's been criticism of him in the press, but he expects little else. And he doesn't read the press. He says he's always made it a, a, you know, a, a point of, of uh, the way he does things, but he doesn't listen to what Chris is saying about him. Very sensible. Um, very sensible, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, no, it, you know, it, it, uh, I think it is very sensible, and it, it's, it's hard for, particularly during this period where the press is so very partisan. All right, I mean, I know perhaps we could say that today as well, but no, in, in this period it really is. Um, and particularly in India, um, you know, and he's not a fan of the Indian press and the Indian press aren't a fan of his. So there's a sense in which they're quite delighted to have this opportunity to attack him. And in many respects, the press in London is just repeating what their Indian colleagues are saying uh, without half the knowledge. Um, so it's a tricky situation for Goff. And, and, and originally, at, at first, 
he doesn't appreciate how things are being understood in London. He gets this letter from uh, the Duke of Wellington, which is rather rambling and not very clear, but basically says, oh, we're sending out Napier to take over from you when you retire. Because Gough technically should have retired by the time you know, the war's being fought. Um, and his terms of service, you know, his length of service was over. So he should have gone. So Gough reads this letter and he just thinks, oh, they're sending Napier out to take over from me when I leave. That's mm, all. At some point in the future. At some point in the future. Um, and actually, there's something that Wellington writes as well, that Napier is there to, something like, to, to serve at your command until you think it, it's time for you to leave. It's a very confusing letter. Um, and one can completely understand why Gough doesn't quite understand that Gough, Napier is being sent out to replace him. Napier has very clear uh, instructions to replace him. But Napier is equally delighted when he gets there to realise that he doesn't have to, to replace him. And, and Napier acts with, with, with wonderful grace and, um, and, and, and charm and uh, is it, very kindly towards the Goths because uh, he even refuses to take up his official residency because that would have left the Goths without somewhere to go. And Napier says, no, I'll go and, you know, I don't know where he went. He found Diggs somewhere and uh, he left the Goths in the, the official residency because, you know, he didn't need it and, and, and it would have put them to inconvenience. Um, it's only really later on that Goff starts to realise just how vitriolic the press has been, just how critical politicians have been of, of him. Um, he also starts reading the reports of the various uh, victories and uh, debates in the House of Lords. Um, he realises that for, for some of the battles, um, the Duke of Wellington actually gives him no credit at all. There's a speech on, and I think it's on Gujarat, in the House of Lords that Wellington gives. He doesn't mention Gough by name once. You know, he, he's lauding this British victory, but he doesn't mention Gough's name. He refers to the Commander-in-Chief, but he doesn't actually say Gough. He names other people. He names other individuals. He doesn't name Gough. Now, as we spoke in the first interview, does this go back to his, his long-standing dislike of, of Gough or whatever? I, I, we, we don't know. We don't know enough to, to say that. It's, there's a degree into which I think you can suggest that there's something going on there. Um, and so Goff starts to get quite bitter about this. Um, at first, he, he's quite understanding, but then he starts, you know. And there's a letter he writes to, uh, to, um, to his son where he says, you know, if I really wanted to, I could tell quite a story here. You know, he, he, could, he could, and he could have embarrassed Dalhousie, he could have embarrassed Wellington, he could have embarrassed the government, because he knows what instructions he's been getting and what restrictions they've been placing on him. And yet they're happy for him to take all the criticism. But Goff was that sort that he didn't really want, you know, he wasn't going to go to the press. He wasn't going to talk out in, in public about things like this. He wasn't going to criticise the politician publicly, whatever he might say privately. So there's a sense in which he ends up taking so much of the blame simply because he's got, partly he's not willing to speak about it, but also he's not got people to speak for him. There's no great goth supporters in government or in the military um, 
had this been, say, one of Wellington's set, then, you know, Wellington would have spoken out for him, others would have spoken out for him. He doesn't have that sort of patronage. He's never had that sort of patronage, which is one of the most, you know, remarkable things about his career, that he rises so high, you know, he receives such honours. He's never really had the sort of level of patronage that many others do to get to that point. Um, so there is something, you know, remarkable there about Goff's career. But, you know, he, he returns to England. He's, he's lauded from pillar to post. There are, uh, he's invited to, to, to uh, speak with uh, Prince Albert. He has quite a long conversation with Prince Albert. Um, the East India Company, who, of course, he's, he's still officially he's in the service of, they uh, laud him and praise him, and he's, you know, he gets his um, uh, an extension to his peerage. He gets various uh, honours and awards, um, some honorary doctorates and things like that. Numerous dinners are given in his uh, name and in his honour. And it's one of the military dinners, I think, where uh, Henry Havelock comes up with that great line about uh, Wellington where he describes Wellington as appearing to be a monument to mouldering greatness. And we do see this, you know, Wellington is very much in a physical and to an extent a mental decline. Uh, there's a dinner, I believe it's at the, uh, oh, I think it's at the United Service Club, where Wellington gives a speech, theoretically supposed to be honouring golf. And again, wanders, um, goes all over the place uh, and starts. And this is after the second Anglo sequel. And he starts praising Hardinge. He spent, I've, I've read the speech. There's loads of it. There's paragraphs where he is praising Hardinge, who wasn't even involved in the second Anglo sequel. Um, but whether he's just trying to say, you know, he, he's, he's going over the whole of Goff's careers and talking about the first anglo sikh war and then goes on to Hardinge, and obviously Hardinge is a friend of his. But there's also a sense where I think this might be where Wellington is starting to get confused in his mind. He sat next to Hardinge, not Goff. And so he's obviously looking at Hardinge and going on about Hardinge, but that's not who he's supposed to be talking about. And there's some bizarre situations during this period. Um, he gets praised very highly by people some Goff doesn't care about particularly, others he, he appreciates. There's a dinner where um, uh, the, the Prime Minister at the time gives a speech in his honour and you can tell Goff doesn't particularly care what he has to say. But then the former Prime Minister, Robert Peel, a man Goff holds in very high esteem, gets up and speaks and, and Goff really appreciates the words that come from Sir Robert Peel. Just quickly then, um, did he die shortly after or did he live a long fulfilling retirement? No, he, he lived quite uh, quite a period of time, and uh, uh, 1869. So he, he lived for, for many years um, after the conflict, um, became quite an old man. He continued to receive honours. Um, he was appointed uh, a gold stick in waiting. Um, it's an interesting, there's an interesting little final element of his career. Um, during the Crimea War, you'll probably be aware that there's, there's great criticism of the leadership. And there's a bizarre situation where the Times, and there's an editorial in the Times, where they actually suggest that Goff might be the man to go out 
and lead the armies in the Crimea. Now, despite the fact he's far too old, it is bizarre that here is the paper that basically wanted him hung, drawn and quartered after Chilamwala, now suggesting he goes out and leads the, uh, you know, the campaign in the Crimea. Now, he does actually go briefly to the Crimea, but after the conflict, on official business as the representative of Her Majesty to give out the awards to French and British generals for their services during the Crimea. Um, and that's one of these, and it, it, it's a great period. It's a lovely little finish off for Goff in terms of service to the crown because he is the crown's representative. He is treated with all the respect and dignity and privileges that would be his if he was the king. Uh, he is, is honoured in such a, a wonderful way that he, he goes there as the official representative of Her Majesty and is treated, in effect, as if he were Her Majesty. Um, and it's a lovely little end to his terms of service, his period of service in, in that era. Now, I, I know this is something we sort of suggested earlier, and you said about um, how he was respected by his men and, and what they thought of him. There's a little, there's a lovely little story um, when he is asked to review the troops in Dublin at one point. And obviously we have the you know, retired field marshal here reviewing all the troops in Dublin. And as he's walking around for the review, at one point, he stops, leaves the official party he's going to, walks over to the crowd and spends quite a while talking to this, this ordinary member of the public, who it's later described had his Peninsula War medal on Gosh. and clearly had bars for the same sort of campaigns. Now, the thought is that this might be someone who possibly even served under Gough. But it might just simply be a, 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 an old soldier who he sees with, with campaign medals for the same place as him. He goes over and he just basically, you know, stop the military parade. I'm going over to have a chat. Um, and it's, that's just typical of the man, but also typical of the way he cared for his soldiers. Um, whatever you might say about his military leadership, his men loved him. Um, you know, not only because obviously he cared for them in this way, even if it was a rather paternalistic care, perhaps a strict care, if you want to put it that way as well. Um, they respected him because he never failed to put himself in harm's way as well. He didn't ask them to do something that he wouldn't do himself. Um, there's the famous, you, you, you probably know this and people watching will know as well, there's the famous white fighting coat that he wears into battle, which clearly marks him out as a target. There are even occasions in battle where he will ride to the front line and ride across the front line and away from the front line to deliberately draw the enemy fire off his men onto him. <laughs> I mean, he, he sometimes, you know, he gets bullet holes, etc., but very not really wounded himself he didn't want to be one of his staff officers because a number of his staff officers were seriously wounded or killed because they rode with him when he was drawing fire from the enemy 
And, you know, I think that sort of sums him up in many ways. He was that sort of, of man. And that, and if anyone does, you know, buy the book, read the book, there's a number of little stories that show that sort of sense of um, care. And that, that quite sort of whimsical sense of, of uh, he has as well. In that, um, you know, he he has a very Irish spirit, and I say that in a very positive way. What a fascinating man and tremendous warrior Sir Hugh Gough was. I hope you've enjoyed this short series as much as I have. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review as it does help the podcast to grow. If you're more visual, you might enjoy the YouTube versions of these interviews, which you can find by searching on Redcoat History on YouTube. All right, guys, take care, and we will be marching again soon.